Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Early on in book one of his treatise on anger, Seneca is going to provide us with and then consider several different definitions of anger so we have a clear idea what we're actually thinking about and reading about and considering as we go through the work. And the first one that he provides is probably the not only the briefest, but the most popular, but it's not a very good definition actually because it doesn't tell us that much. You've probably run across it if you have looked anywhere about Seneca on anger. And he says, some wise people have said that anger is a brief madness. Breviam insaniam, right? So a insanity that has a short duration while you're actually angry. And he does follow it up saying it's no less lacking in self-control, forgetful of decency, unmindful of personal ties, unrelentingly intent on its goals, shut off from rational deliberation, stirred for no substantial reason, unsuited to discerning what's fair and true, just like a collapsing building that's reduced to rubble, even as it crushes what it falls upon. Now that's a very interesting metaphor, but other than saying, yeah, anger does these things and it's like a kind of craziness or insanity, that doesn't tell us how how anger really functions. And so what we want to look at instead are the three definitions that he's going to provide, one right after another, uh, one of which is being attributed to Posidonius, who is in fact a Stoic, no longer just a wise man. The, the first one is probably a Stoic definition. Scholars think that the third one may in fact be coming from Epicureans, and Seneca is willing to draw upon Epicureans when he finds it useful. And then he looks at one of Aristotle's definitions as well. So these are a little bit more extensive, you could say, or focusing in on the actual topic. So let's look at these three definitions first. He begins by saying, anger is the desire, cupiditas, right? A word that he's going to use at several different points. A lust you could translate it as, a strong desire as it gets translated in the Aristotle's definition. A desire for what? Taking vengeance. Now we're actually getting to what anger is about. It's not just being insane. It's not just derailing reason. It is about taking vengeance, ulki skediai, right? For a wrong, injuriai. Somebody has to do something that either is an actual wrong or is just perceived as a wrong. Otherwise, you don't really have anger. And then the next two definitions are going to bring in some new aspects, right? So the one that's attributed to Posidonius, a desire to punish the person. Now it's no longer just vengeance, but punishment. And there's an additional aspect by whom you reckon, puto, right? So you think, you deem that you were unjustly harmed, iniquiae lysum. 
And so there's a sense no longer of just in injury, but also harm in some respect, and that it was done wrongly. It was done wickedly, right? So it was done without justice or contrary to justice. And then the third, he says, is anger is the arousal of the mind. So now we've got this inkitium, a being stirred up. And that's also part of the way anger manifests itself, an arousal of the mind. And here he uses nokere to harm in three different places. To harm ad nokendum. So that's what you're intending to do. You want to harm the other person. But why do you want to harm the other person? To harm the person who has either harmed one, no career, right? The person who has actually done harm to you or wished to do so, intended to do so. You think that they want to harm you, right? So with each of these, we're sort of adding components to the understanding of what it is that this passion of anger actually consists in. And he actually considers some counter arguments against this. The first is a little bit fragmentary. And he says, you know, why does the crowd become angry with gladiators so unfairly that it thinks it is an offense? They're not glad to die. The crowd judges it's being treated with contempt and it changes from spectator to opponent. Whatever that sort of thing is, it's not really anger, but just something that looks like anger. And he brings up children who want to pummel the ground if they've fallen, who don't even know that they're angry. They are without a reason and without being wronged, yet not without a certain impression of being wronged and not without some desire for payback. And so their payback is imaginary, as he says, it's against inanimate objects, whereas real anger is against things that we think are animate, things that we think do have intentions to harm us, did so wrongly, and all of that. And we can put that aside. A more interesting objection is this. We become angry or often not with people who have harmed us, but with those who intend to harm us. From this, it's clear that anger is not the product of a wrong. And Seneca says, no, no, that's not a good counter argument that actually reinforces what I'm saying. He says, we do become angry with those who intend to harm us, but they harm us by that very intention. One who intends to commit a wrong is already committing it. So in a way, anger grasps the motive of the other person. They could be threatening. They could just be intending. They could be planning. And we get angry at them as a way of retaliating for something they haven't yet done, but have in mind that they want to do or are conveying to us that they want to do. He says, another objection, it's clear anger is not a desire for payback. Why? Because the very weakest people are often angry at the most powerful. They don't desire a payback. They have no hope of achieving. Now, this actually is an objection that is similar to points made by Aristotle saying, we don't get angry at those who we can't actually get any retribution against. And Seneca says, and I think he's quite right about this, it's the desire for exacting a payback, not the capacity to do so. And people do desire things they cannot achieve. And then he says in the second place, no one is so lowly, he cannot conceive a hope of making even the loftiest pay. We are all quite capable when it comes to doing harm, even if it's just in our imagination, even if it's just posting impotently on social media and saying, so-and-so is a bad person, ooh, something like that. Seneca thinks that 
That's anger, right? So, so these definitions do in fact work. And then here he turns to look at Aristotle's definition. Now we should be very clear that this is only one of several definitions that Aristotle does provide of anger. He discusses anger in such a way as to give a definition in the rhetoric book two, which Seneca is not referencing here in the topics and in on the soul. And so, in On the Soul, he says that we could look at anger in several different ways. We could look at it in a physical way as a boiling of blood around the heart. Notice that Seneca is not worried about that here, but we could also look at it as a strong desire to return pain for pain or literally to make suffer in reciprocity, in return, you know, antipathen. So a strong desire, cupiditatum, saw that before with the desire to take vengeance before. So the strong is not really part of what's going on here, but returning pain for pain, repondendi, right? To respond in kind with dolores. Dolor is pain, suffering, anguish. It's got a wide range of things. So somebody made us suffer. We want to make them suffer in return. And he goes on and he says, the difference between his definition and ours cannot be explained briefly. But then he does consider something else, another possible objection. Well, what about wild animals? Don't don't wild animals become angry as well? And he says they do so without the provocation of being wronged. Why does he say that? Because wild animals don't have a sense of right and wrong. They just respond to threats in the environment or to being injured or something like that. You pull the cat's tail for Seneca, the cat is not saying, you have done me an injustice and now I will get angry and maybe swipe at you. It's just, it's just a stimulus response. And so he says that wild animals, all creatures except for the human being are without anger. Although anger is reason's enemy, it comes only into being where reason resides. There's something unique about human beings. Wild animals have impulses, frenzy, ferocity, aggression, but they no more have anger than they have luxury, even though they're less self-controlled than humans when it comes to certain pleasures. So that's an objection that could apply to all of these definitions. And Seneca says, no, no, wild animals aren't really angry at all. He goes on to consider two other things that we should think about as we're talking about definitions. He says, what anger is, what ira anger is, has has been sufficiently explained and how it differs from wrathfulness. Irracundia is plain. And he says, here's an analogy. It's the same way that being drunk differs from being a drunkard and being afraid differs from being fearful. What's the difference here? Well, some people are much more disposed towards anger. A drunkard gets drunk all the time, right? That's part of who they are. And being fearful means that you feel fear much more often than the average person much more easily. So some people are, you know, we could call them wrathful. We could also call them irritable would work as well. They are more prone to being angry. And he says someone who is angry, so angry at a particular time, might not be wrathful. Someone who is wrathful might sometimes not be angry, but they are more disposed to be so. 
The other thing that he says that's really quite interesting, and here he's referencing a rather sophisticated understanding of the emotions that is coming in part from the Stoics, but also from other sources. There were many different kinds of anger that were singled out and discussed, categorized, right? And he actually goes so far towards the end as saying that there are a thousand varieties, a thousand types, kinds, right? Of this polymorphous, this many shaped evil. And so he says that these categories that distinguish different kinds of anger with a differentiated terminology in Greek lack their own labels in Latin. So I'll pass them by. And then he says, but we do have a vocabulary in Latin and we cover a lot of things. So we have bitter, amarus, right? We have harsh, acerbus, testy, stomachus, uh, which is coming from Greek, right? Frenzied, rabiosus, the word we get rabies from, right? Ranting, clamosus, clamor is shouting or screaming or something like that. Difficult, difficilis, cognate term right there. Prickly, asper. And he says these are all different kinds of anger. And we could also include among this peevish, morosus. When we say that somebody is morose, they're just kind of like, you know, always having something bad to say, always looking on the irritable side of things, hypersensitive sort of wrathfulness, he says. And he says there's certain forms of anger that simmer down short of shouting, some that are frequent and difficult to shake, some that are savagely physical and not very verbal, some that let loose in a torrent of bitter abuse and curses. Some forms don't go beyond complaining and sulking. Others are deep and weighty and inward turning. And he doesn't give those names, but these are all different sorts of anger, but they all fit under at least one of these definitions, maybe not Aristotle so much, but the ones that he is providing at the very beginning. So there's a lot of different types of anger, a lot of ways in which anger, you could say, shapes and itself and gets manifested in a person's attitudes and actions and feelings and words, all these sorts of things that we see, even their facial expressions, but they all have the same basic structure that these definitions allow us to wrap our heads around. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, Keep studying these great philosophical works.